Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists. This week, my guest is multi-instrumentalist because you play more than one instrument. You're a cellist, a conductor, a writer and arranger, producer, educator, and uh, band leader. And band leader. <laughs> Akua Dixon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, T. It's good to see you. Good to see you. I'm just, I'm excited to have you on the show. We got one chance so far and have had one chance to work with you, and that was like a great honor of mine. We did the Sister Strings Roots Voice and Drums project last year, and that was fabulous. Really great to work with you and to play some of your music. That was a pleasure of mine. Because I met you there, I was like, I had the nerve to ask you to come on the show. Okay. (laughs) So that was a fun and family feeling doing that gig. So we all got to spend some time and work it out together. That was a good time. Yeah, But I wanted to just ask you about what drew you initially to playing the cello. Of all the different instruments that you could have played, and I know you played more than one, but what ultimately drew, drove you to the cello as your main instrument? Opportunity, okay? I grew up in a household that had a piano. My mother was not a classical pianist. She knew her spirituals and some blues. And so did most of her sisters. If you think about families, especially in the South, at, of that generation, you didn't have record plays. You had a piano in the house and everybody could tinkle some. And the person that tinkled the best got to play the most. Out of my siblings, there were six of us and went to a Baptist church. And there was a piano there. And we all had a piano in the house. I always lived in a house that had a piano. I was the best tinkler. So I got to play the piano more. And even at a young age, I was coming up with arrangements and new little ditties and kitty songs that me and my sisters and brothers would harmonize with back then. Since we were in the choir, we also got to do that and have a feeling of harmony music. So the elementary school in my neighborhood had a great music program. And my sister, Gail, who was a wonderful violinist, was two grades higher than me. She was in that program. So they tested me in third grade. I passed the music test and my academics were good. So I went into the a class that had music for a half a day and academics for a half a day for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. They gave me a violin, which I played for a while. Uh, But someone donated a bunch of cellos to the school and they showed it and demonstrated and said who wanted to try it. I raised my hand and I've been happy ever since. Now, professionally, I will have to say that I started gigging at a really young age. (laughs) 
Okay. And growing up in New York, the work opportunities at my generation and what I was blessed to be trained to do, the doors that I could knock open and work, I was able to earn a good living. So that's the main reason. Why would I do something else if I'm making the money playing cello? Okay. So there was that much freelancing in New York it's from after high school, especially on that level. That's cool. <laughs> so I really never, I did some little temp work as a secretary in between shows a couple of times, but nothing outside of music because teaching music is still music. True. Well, you were playing in high school, so they say, okay, I'm going to gig for a living. You just made that professional decision. I'm go- I'm already working professionally, so I'm going to continue to do this. You just say, okay, now I have to go to school and get a degree, or did you say, I'm just going to gig, or how did that, because you went to college too, right? So Yes, I went to the Manhattan School of Music. Okay. I just kept doing what I'd always been doing, and it was a lot of fun for me. If I think back to my youth, most of my friends were other string players. And for fun, we got together and had chamber music parties. Okay. The city had uh, orchestras. The city had string orchestras for our age bracket that we all belonged to. So that's all we ever did. Mm. Uh, because of that, in junior high school, my parents got us to a quartet of us, my sister and me and two friends, to play at a, a function for our neighborhood center that was a fundraiser. So we performed and it was at the Lobster Box, which was a whole restaurant at the end of City Island. So when we finished playing, it was a string quartet. He told our parents that a lot of people come in there for weddings and they want a string quartet. If they would allow it, he could get us a couple of gigs. We started doing a few gigs a year there. The churches that we played at, everybody that was in the band or in that group of string players, whether they went to a synagogue or a church, Lutheran, Baptist, whatever, when those places found out that there was this group of string players to support us and give us encouragement, when they had concerts like Messiah's Mm -hmm. and Christmas and Easter concerts doing even Christmas songs, uh, we would do arrangements and we would come and play. So I was always, my life was always filled with music. Mm -hmm. And having an older sister, I had somebody that I could travel with to go to orchestra rehearsals and stuff like that. By the time uh, I was in high school, I was doing a lot of freelancing and contracting. And I went from there uh, to the Manhattan School of Music, which is in New York City. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was 1966. So uh, time of the civil rights era. And at that time in music, there was a lot of strings in popular music, as well as on Broadway, as well, not as much in jazz, but there were a lot of jazz musicians that I met that were exploring, writing either for string quartet or string uh, a string orchestra with a big band. Sure. You know? So I got to do and book a lot of those things because of the work that I was doing. So in 1968, I got my first union card and I worked at the Apollo Theater with James Brown. And from there, I went to the Copa and to Westbury and then to Broadway and then also doing jazz gigs. And the Latin scene was also very big in New York City. And there was a there was just a group of young black string players that we formed a group called the String Reunion. Okay. And it was thought upon. We formed an organization called the String Reunion, which Noel Pointer set up. Oh. He made my sister the president 
and he was the vice president. I became the director of new, new music because initially we were just playing classical music and classical string quartets. So if they, if I wanted to play something else, I had to start finding music. So I wrote more music. And at the same time that I wrote music, I encouraged other jazz composers that I was working with to also write for our ensemble. So we were gigs with Archie Shep, uh, Jimmy Heath, Frank Foster. So we got to know there was a black community of music that was developing. The thing I I wonder about is as a composer myself is I still, and I've been writing a while now and I still feel trepidatious. I should say if I was working with people with names like that, and here's my little squiggles and you were just like, okay, I'm just going to write. How did that come about? Cause it's it much like a read. Easy. No, exactly. It's because, <laughs> because even though I knew how to read everything, I didn't know anything about composition because it wasn't taught that way. I didn't go to school for music. So I learned music on the fly. I had teachers and stuff, and I went to music camps and things. But no one ever said, oh, this is how you write this down. This is, I didn't have all the theory classes, none of that stuff. So it was like, oh, I can read it. So, huh, how do I figure this rhythm thing out? And that w- after a while, I literally just started to transcribe things with note heads. Just right. that's it. And right. key signatures as best I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I can. I could make stuff up, but I yeah. was like, huh, I don't know how to write this rhythm. I don't know. And then to just do a whole string quartet arrangement, here you go. That's impressive. But did you just learn all that in college or? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I did study. I have to say this. The High School of Performing Arts had an excellent theory department. Okay. With teaching you move figured bass, sight singing. It was my high school diploma says academic diploma with a major in vocational music. Mm. So the same way I had to take regents exams in English or in history, I had regents exams in theory. Okay. Okay. And in music history and sight singing and dictation, and they were hard. So by the time I got to Manhattan School of Music, I exempted out of most of the theory. classes. I took counterpoint and something else. I can't even remember because that was the 60s. There was no jazz there at all. And they felt that at least this is what they told me, that I had studied a lot of harmony and theory, but I had never studied composition. So they would have to put me in a beginning composition class, but I would be bored because my theoretical knowledge is too great. I had my own quartet with my sister. And because of that, I could put in a piece of mine in addition to the other repertoire that we were playing, including the traditional European classical music. If we were doing a Black History Month function, I could add some spirituals if it was at a church or add a piece by Hale Smith or Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. So in addition to something of mine, I could start to branch out a little bit. Till it got to the point that really all I was doing was my music and arrangements because that was all I needed to do. But it gave me the opportunity while I was working here, not only to work as a cellist and as a band leader within a quartet, but to also work as an arranger. Because if I got hired for a wedding, they would say, I would love to have, say, Besame Mucho. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first violinist in my quartet has chops, so I can't write out a little rinky-dink arrangement. 
at this point in my life and career, I have to write out really some serious string charts for them. It's been keeping me busy, and it's also been another way for me to work within the industry with my own band. That's in and of itself is is a heck of a lot of work. It's, it's great because you get to express yourself in so many different ways. This is you playing, you writing. This is your heart and your vision of how a tune should be. It's being expressed through other people. Then you conduct it and you get to play the band as a yeah. conductor. So that's multi multi-challenged brain. Yes, it is. It's constant. I think about that now. You get older and you say, boy, I need to calm it down a little bit. You go from one thing to the other. But working in the pandemic has still, I've still been working, but it's been very different, of course. I'm not uh, doing all that running around and carrying the cello and playing as much as I was then. And the New York scene definitely has not opened back up yet Mm -hmm. for that kind of playing.
I've been gone now for 11 years, 12 years from New York. And even when I was there, I was surprised at how people are being taught now to do jazz. Yeah. It's very much like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like a Cracker Jack box. You might get a prize that's that you want. <laughs> you know, but the players are capable. They can read. They can uh, write stuff down. They can mostly play. But it, it's there's a missing element or something. I'm, I'm like they don't know standards because they don't need to learn them anymore for some reason. Yeah, and they don't see the value in looking back at all to the history. Yeah. Uh, and I've had several conversations with people who just were like, I just don't like that. I like Wayne Shorter and anything after that. But anything before Wayne Shorter, they're like not interested in. And I'm like, how is that possible? Yeah, Wayne Shorter listened to all these people. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was different with our generation. And I feel like I was accepting of so many different styles of music that teachers presented in front of me. And I got a benefit and wasn't so close-minded. I could play anything. They could give me a, a European classical piece. I could play a Latin piece. I could play a jazz piece. I could play a ballet piece. It didn't matter. I was open to checking it out. Mm-hmm. When you write and do your own thing, you write and do your own thing. I would not, as a someone who wants to express myself musically, be stuck into just having to do one little grain or nugget of the entire spectrum of what music has to offer. But I find that people today, it's also about what you're fed. When I was coming up, there was a black radio station and there was a white radio station. So if you wanted to listen to the Beach Boys, you listened to one. And if you wanted to listen to James Brown, you listened to the other. Now, radio was free. Everybody had one in their house. So you could listen to whatever station you wanted to. So you could listen to both stations. It's just that was the style of music that was on it. Black music was flourishing, and especially in the 60s when you have the civil rights movement, because you had all the freedom songs that were coming up from the slave songs and the history of all of that music coming up into jazz. You had people like Max Roach doing freedom suites and Duke Ellington also doing freedom suites. So the nature of the music. You had Mingus, Fables of Faubus. You had all kinds of historical documentation of the feelings of what jazz originally was. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for me, that is not where it is today. That whole history is not what, and it shouldn't be a matter of whether you're interested in learning it or not. When I was in school, they gave you, this was the history of European classical music. You start with this, you take this, it goes to this, it goes to this. That's the training. But colleges also don't have courses in the roots of that part of American music. It's just got, I don't know, looked over or something. There are... going. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, they're... There weren't any jazz departments either when I was coming up. They didn't really establish jazz departments till after I graduated from college. So I'm talking 1989 before there were any actual jazz departments. And as a violin player, there was nobody. People wouldn't teach me. Like I had a, a couple. I went to Michigan State University. And I had I would take violin lessons there from the professors. But they did not take me seriously because I wasn't a music major and I wasn't playing classical music. So they were like, they I come and do my thing, and they didn't care. They didn't pay any attention to my. Le- they literally just look at me like, whatever. I'm filing my nails. Wow. 
because wow. and they told me straight up, you're, yeah. you're, I'm just getting paid. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I was like, oh, okay. So, so I stopped going at that point. Classical career and yeah. train was training like that. That was the That's only that they had. Wow. Yeah. That's that really the sad. Training that was available when I was in school. That's all that was available when I was there too. So. Yes. So I had that training, but at the same time, I walked out of the conservatory and I worked to my gig and I'm playing with James Brown. Right. And you can't play that style and that rigidity of rhythm mm-hmm. uh, with James Brown's music and be correct. Mm-hmm. Or with Jimmy Heath's music or with Max Roach's music. It's not the same. No, it's not you the know? same. And there's a lot to be learned from studying it and doing it in its perfection of what it is, mm-hmm. not trying to make you do something else. And I feel like the music has gotten there. Jazz now, they've taken certain kernels of the music that can be calculated and taught and is lovely and enjoyable to do. And a lot of people can do it, which is wonderful. I enjoyed playing string quartets with everybody. So I'm glad that the world has opened up that music is a universal language, mm-hmm. but I still feel that there's areas of it that need to also be perpetuated because they're just doing a little nugget and it's not reaching out into all the music that can be enjoyed, especially when it comes to music of people like Mary Lou Williams and other women composers. They're not doing that. I remember going to a workshop, I think it was Yusef Latif, and he talked about improvisation. And he just said he just had a whole group of people doing some vocal improvisations. And he said, it's not about the tones. It's not even about mixing into the chords. It's really about the rhythm. Yeah. So he said, you can sing anything in any kind of note. It can be out of tune completely with the chord. But if it's rhythmically (laughs) correct, it'll still work. That's and I was right. like, and I took that to heart because it's like, yeah. And I have taught workshops. I taught, I will never forget it. I taught a workshop with a choir and it was probably a hundred voice women's choir, a hundred voices. And we were doing vocal improv in a, in a big circle sing. And I had one person who was ambitious enough to say, I said, okay, you want to take a solo? And she said, yeah. And she literally stood there and screamed in rhythm. <laughs> It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life, but it worked. It worked. Yeah. I have been at a local bar someplace in in America that was having a jam session and somebody walks in with an ax and all they can play is like three notes on it. But there's a blues that they sit in on and the statement they make rhythmically with those three notes, they had everybody clapping and, and having a great time. You're right. But in the conservatory level and what's going on in what jazz musicians in a lot of cases are putting out for the general public to hear in clubs and stuff like that. It's about playing 5 million notes, Yeah, you know, and uh, I always say there's a space for everything Mm -hmm. and there's a space for that, but everything doesn't have to be that. I know several people would quantify what is jazz uh, because jazz is such an odd term anyhow. And if it doesn't, include the blues in some sort of way it's not really jazz i've heard that argued and parts of the parts of me definitely agree with that and then also what i play is not jazz anyway i don't think because i play improvisational music Uh uh-huh 
And that can be anybody's tradition. Yes. I tend to bring all the pieces of my education from all the things that I've listened to and grew up with, which includes classical music, which includes R&B, which includes blues, which includes traditional jazz, which includes Baroque music, which includes Indian music, which includes all these different things that I like and Latin music and all of that comes in there. So when I bring my improvisation, it has all those pieces in it. So it's not jazz, but if I'm going to quantify myself, it's jazz because there's nobody else that allows you to have that space. freedom, yes. The reason uh, jazz, like you said, is in its original context was given to music that was played for entertainment purposes at jazz clubs in New Orleans. That's jazz, okay? That's not the beginning of Black music, and that's not the end of Black music. It's a space along the timeline. Mm-hmm. To me, if you look at how European classical music has been timelined, you have madrigals, you have the Baroque period, you have the this period, that period. And African-American music has also had that, has that same type of lineage, mm-hmm. you know, and it starts with the basic pentatonic scale. Mm-hmm. And it grew, like you said, uh, you can't leave out the blues, but you also, in that mix of time, uh, because we were forced to accept and deal with hymns and Christian music, that made a big difference in the chord structures and the forms that we were now bringing into our pentatonic scale singing that we were doing that had our work songs. Mm-hmm. Now we're writing and rewriting the hymns that we learned from them because the rhythmic structure is not the same, okay? African music being based in rhythm more so than in harmony in a lot of cases the rhythmic structure, people like to say is a groove, but you have to realize that there's more to saying that as a word and just playing your little your little bit of the groove. Something that's a groove has to fit in with something else or it ain't grooving. And when you get a section of drummers and they all have to groove together, it's not about, okay, I'm counting and I'm playing my part. No, if you're not feeling it and grooving it with it, then you're not playing the groove, mm-hmm. okay? So I find that no matter how much of other nationalities' musics I've studied, there are sections of my music, even if it may have their elements in it, it still has that connectivity to my soul and my uh, rhythmic structure that I've learned or heard since I was a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
that makes sense. That makes sense. It's one of those things I just I see over time. It's changing in in odd ways, and mm-hmm. I think it is because people have boxed it so much, and and there's that always that determination of teaching it on the university level. Once you've codified everything, then sometimes it loses pieces of its soul yeah. because it because they're trying to teach it in a box. And yeah. you can't teach it in a box. You only yeah. teach the idea of it. And I guess if that was more the concept that was being <laughs> like, this is an idea of what this is not it. This is yeah. the best we can do to approximate what this is. But you have to realize that this is a capitalist society. Yeah. Okay. True. And they benefit from boxes. Mm-hmm. Music at this point has been boxed including our music and how it's been taught for many years. It's boxed. This is how it's it's done. And most people, I won't say all people, are dealing with that box. And that's all they can deal with is that box. I don't care whether it's a box that's in uh, European studies where you're doing Suzuki and it's all done like this, right. or whether it's in jazz and you everything you do is coming out of the Abasol book and you're playing along with play-along records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's all in a box. Where's the organic teaching of the music? True. And that's partly because you have to have that one-on-one interaction and play with the master, so to speak. Sit every day and say, okay, like what do they do, I guess, in India uh, when they teach tabla or something like that? You don't yeah. get to sing for years. You yeah. just listen to the master go do ba double do da 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 you know, like that. Yeah. And you say, oh, one day he's going to let me sing because all the time you've been around him, You've been learning all this stuff. Yes. And then one day he'll point to you and be like, sing it. And you should know because you've been there. Because, yes, I had that experience with Rasan. And one of the biggest things, biggest favors he could have ever done. You mean Rasan Roland Kirk? Yes. I was at his home because he asked me to, he hired me to notate a piece for him, you know. And we would sitting and talking and discussing it and going through some music. And he played something and asked me to play it back. And I played it back. And I said, is that it, Russell? And his answer was, almost. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I was young and I accepted the fact that he thought it was an almost. And I got busy and worked harder so I could make it what he really wanted. Some people can't take the what the almost and they give up. That almost took me to notating a piece for him that I still remember the melody in my head. It was such a haunting piece and such a wonderful performance that we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. When, when you get those experiences, you get that opportunity to to work with a great mind. Yes. And they see something in you and then they can pull more out. That's such a, a treat yes. you know, to get that <laughs> moment. Uh, yeah. And then you have to see it as a treat too. That's the part because yes, you do because it will yes, it kick you, you in the butt. But <laughs> yes, it's funny because I've had several things that have impacted my life and my playing and my whole uh, view on the industry that have been so wonderful in that sense that it's just kept me going and enjoying the music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you've written an opera. Yes. Is that in production anywhere? Or you've got plans for that? (laughs) What's going on with that? It's not in production. It took me a lot to finish it and notate it in the computer. And I've done the entire piano vocal score. Okay. 
I'm working with the copyist now to also, because help me set up the word, the lyrics, because I put the lyrics in as I would say them, but a dramaturge will let you know that it's how it's punctuated in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. is how it should be in the score. So I'm adjusting things like that so I can have a, a reading and keep on with it. Okay. But the notation of something of that size is a lot. And this was my first and probably only opera. It was a wonderful experience. I started it when I was much younger and raising my kids when I started out. And I had to stop for a good 20 some odd years because my schedule and my life just raising kids and trying to work was just too much to work on it. And I just, after kids are all grown up and I'm on my own, I just recently finished the second half and learning the program to type the music into the computer is not easy. No. Yes, not. But soon I did record the beginning of it solo piano and told a little bit about the story and it's been videoed. So that shall be put me coming out soon on my webpage and on social media. So what is the name of the opera? It's the Opera of Marie Laveau. Okay. Now who is Marie Laveau for those who may not know? Okay. Marie Laveau lived in 1850 and she was a Creole lady in New Orleans who ruled New Orleans with her voodoo powers. Okay. So it's a story of, yes, it's a story of a segment of her life. Yes. And did, how did you research this whole thing? The story was brought to me. Okay. I had worked with Aisha Rachman on some other things, and she um, was looking for a composer to set this story of hers. And I was re- recommended to her by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. So, okay. um, Fantastic. When I saw the story, I said yes, and we started working together. And it's, it was a real growth for me. As someone who studied music also as a vocation, I've had to write things that fit into a box, mm-hmm. okay? And I'm also free to write my own stuff where I don't have to fit into somebody's box. But it was good to learn to write within that box because it's good work to be able to do and it's still in music. I learned a lot of different styles and song forms. If I'm left to my own devices, I don't usually write a song that's a rhymey, even kind of thing. I write music that's more prose. Okay. So when she said to me she wanted to do an opera, I said, boy, that's right up my alley because I'm not trying to write a musical that has more sing-songy. Succinct song. Right. I'm not saying that those aren't nice because there's a lot of songs that I love. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't been a natural flow for me to come up with that on the musical side, on my own. If somebody gave me the lyrics and the lyrics say that, then I do put it in that form, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So having my pen open to write an opera and to be able to express my composing like that and to tell a story where you're trying to have thematic material and characters that you develop a sound all throughout this magical journey uh, of music is been wonderful. Now, did you have any particular artist in mind when you were thinking about the singers for this? The voices that you really heard in your head when you were writing it? Yes and no. Okay. You know, I will say that I love voices to work with that have, that I can just hand my music to. Okay. But I'm not 
I like the sound that's gotten more on Broadway in a sense, more so than in an opera theater in a lot of ways. So like an operetta style more? Uh, yes, or Broadway musical style. Okay, okay. You know, but my it's hard, it's something halfway in between. Mm-hmm. I've had it read by opera singers and it they it was wonderful, but I like a little more leeway with the voice. I find that opera, just like European classical music, all the vocalists really sound a lot alike. Right. Same vibrato. There's not too much difference in character and style. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at African-American singers, the Sarah Vaughns, the Ella Fitzgeralds, the Aretha Franklins, the Nancy Wilsons, you can tell distinctly which one is which because there's some personality and something in it. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to have a little bit of that in what's ultimately done with it. Well, that's nice to hear, actually, because you don't hear anybody talk about that. It's, oh, yeah, this, they just say, this is a color tour or soprano, and this is what they should sound like. And it's, everybody doesn't have the same voice. Your throat box is different. Your body size is different. Your sound's going to reverberate through your body differently, depending on the size of your body or the cavities in your body. And yeah. the air fills your lungs and all of these different things apply and how you stand and all kinds of things. So you can't sound exactly like someone else. So that's well. This this is becomes the uh, same kind of testing uh, site as like the Olympics mm-hmm. when you're going for a classical pianist or vocalist or whatever, and they have to do the same challenges that singers or uh, swimmers or whoever has had, and you're not supposed to do anything else but that comes into play in that music. And I can respect that in that music, but it's not the only music on the planet. I am I really am excited to hear this piece. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'll have an audience sitting with me. <laughs> exactly. I want to hear it like that myself too. I've heard the beginning of it and with voices up to the intermission. Okay. So uh, that was lovely. Yeah, I bet. Because now were you surprised how it came out? Did it grasp you? Like when you heard it initially in your head, did it sound anything like you thought or completely different? Even better. Okay, that's good. (laughs) I wound up with some fabulous singers who did it for me. At the time it was read, the first half was like 1989. Okay. And it was at um, the public theater. And Aisha and I had won a Rockefeller grant and used it for an opportunity to hear the first half and hire singers and have rehearsals and have a production of it in a sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's fabulous. There were no tickets, but the words got out fast and it was totally, there wasn't an empty seat in the place. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time because they had done a production of Porgy and Bess at Radio City Music Hall. Mm -hmm. That was an all black cast that had just finished. Mm -hmm. And for some reason I hooked up with a few of them. And next thing I knew, um, I had a bunch of fantastic singers in the chorus and everything else so to work with. So it was amazing. That's great. I mean, because I've spoken to some singers that I went to high school with that have been doing Porgy and Besses forever. And they've told me about like this rut that a lot of singers get into. And that's all they do. Yes. In that field is because I know I can get a gig with this. So they just stay with Porgy and Bess for their entire career. And I'm like, no, there's other music out there, you know? Yes, but also I would say capitalism and other issues dealing with being in this society. Why is it that the music, and I'm not saying that Porgy and Bess is not a great. No, it's a fabulous. It is. Just like, to be honest with you, why do we sing Amazing Grace? 
Mm-hmm. It's written by a white male ship's captain who was running slaves from Africa to America. Why is this the most popular African-American hymn to sing? It was because he talked about being reformed. I think that was the whole but point. But that's not, he wasn't reformed because he was sorry that he was a slaver. Mm. His boat was about to go down. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and he got religious. Okay. okay? Right. Because he wanted to be saved. But it wasn't because he was sorry that he was a slave driver. True. Okay. He drove the boats from there to here. But why is it that we accept a piece of music? If I had noticed that in other cultures, they haven't given up their culture and their music. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying that they don't like other cultures music, but there's still pieces of theirs that they love to listen to. Mm -hmm. Why is it that we listen to Porgy and Bess and we don't even know that we've had composers who've written works like that? It's true. It's true. It's apartheid of the mind. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yes. And we have to search further and also help to educate ourselves. Mm hmm. Because I find that the status quo in education is giving you a box that has these few people in it, and everybody knows those few people. And that's it. If you want, as a parent, if I wanted my children to know about other areas in science, in math, in whatever, I had to be proactive Mm -hmm. and at least show them how to open that door to educating themselves. Mm -hmm. Now they tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is great. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is. I'll accept that when they're right. <laughs> Which is quite often. It's good to um, be able to interact with both my kids. You know. mm-hmm. Now, are they in music too? or Both of them are in music. Okay. And um, that wasn't my choice. That was their choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. I couldn't tell them, no, they shouldn't go into music because they saw both of their parents being able to live and work in the music profession. We set an example right. that they've kept up with. Oh, why wouldn't you? It's a family. It's the family gig. <laughs> yes, yes, and no, because of where society is today for music, music is not, and the study of music is not respected on a certain level. Oh, and yeah, it, I know that it? one. Okay, there are schools now. There are places that are just setting the music, the instruments, out in the street. Because everybody's DJing and using stuff that's already been recorded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not easy. So, and it's not instant. So, therefore, yes, that instant gratification and mm-hmm. music is not the study of music is not instant gratification. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I had theory when I was in high school because I don't think I would have been tolerated taking that kind of class today. You're there. You have to go to school. You don't have a choice. (laughs) Right, right. You have to graduate at least high school. Mm -hmm. So you have to go. You have to take these courses and you got to pass. Period. End of sentence. So you study for the exams and you take it. Right. Every now and then I'll have these conversations with myself. If I had a time machine and I could go back in time, what would I do? But then I just say I wouldn't have this knowledge, so I couldn't go back. Right, you know, and then it, even if I was going back, the stuff that I know now doesn't even exist at that time, so I couldn't do the things I still. Want. So it's like, oh, then I just I go on this. Like, <laughs> you're where I, you I'm are. Yeah. Yes, I hear you. 
<laughs> Me too. I, there, there are always things that I say I wished I had paid more attention to. But I did keep on with what I felt was important for me to learn. And I still do because I'm still, music is the kind of trade that will keep you curious forever. True. I'm now writing a string quartet piece, but not for my string quartet. Hmm. I've done some pieces way, and it's been a long time for a classically trained quartet that I don't know. And a piece that has to be about 15 minutes in length. For them to play. I would say that the good thing about it for me is that I've had a good practice in a lot of kinds of harmonies. Since I've always written for string quartet, I know about balance and double stops and all of this kind of stuff. I've had to write out solos before. So if I need to have something like that, I can put it in there. But it's not that kind of piece. I'm free to write whatever I feel like writing Mm -hmm. as long as I can write it down. And I've managed being in this industry and the experiences that I've had learning how to do just that. Now, do you have passages at all in any of your works where you just say, put down your cello and clap? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) Because I know you had to play pieces like that. I know I have. Yes, yes. But I will say that there's one rag that I've done that was a UB Blake rag Mm -hmm. that has some stomping in it at a few places that's written into the piece for pianists and I transcribed it and that's what happened. But I have a few slap bass pieces because I've studied gospel music. Some of the spirituals that have that where you have to slap as a bass player on the two and the four. But I've had people give me charts, especially in New York City, that have just amazed me, I'm going to (laughs) say. And then I've had people who give me nothing and think that I can read their mind. Yeah. Yeah, that right there has happened to me so many times when I did get called to do a piece with somebody and they're like, just play something. And you play something. And then they don't, yeah, it's what do you have in mind? And I always have to say, do you want whole notes? Because usually they want whole notes, half notes, or tremolo. Yeah. Yeah, they don't know what, you gotta get there. Yeah. Some eighth notes in the middle. They don't know what they want and they think or when I used to play weddings a lot, they'd want me to play. I'm a solo violinist, but they want me to play like a whole violin section. And they yes. say, oh, this song has strings in it. And I'll listen to it. I said, well, let me hear it because I don't know the song. And they'll play it for me. And I said, do you realize I can play that, but I am only one violin. That is a whole right. section. I'm not playing the whole symphony. So I, you're going to hear one violin playing whole notes. Yes. Which is what that I, is. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to work. And I know people do ask you some questions in music. They say, how did they even come up with that? I was doing a solo concert as part of a series at UMass. And uh, at the end of the performance, the guy who put on the production wanted me to do a piece from a, an album that he had heard that I was on. That was Archie Shep with the Attica Blues Band, big band with strings. Okay. Do you know what I mean? That was like a 30 piece big band. Right. And he wanted me to play something from that. <laughs> By yourself. Solo cello or some such craziness. But I've played, I went to the piano and sat and played and accompanied myself because I played solo cello the whole night. And that made him happy. Okay. Okay. Because so, it had a full cool sound to it. It had a different sound to it. Right. To him. He just wanted something else. Play the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a good record, but there's nothing I I can't 
there's no way a solo cello can uh, do that. Yeah. I've had people want me to play Bjork. And I'm oh, like, I don't even know Bjork. I know who she is, but I don't know any of her stuff. It, but it's like she's singing and doing her thing. And then there's there might be a string section playing like third strings. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Yeah, I hear you. I will say that last year, I think it was just before the pandemic, I had some students that were into Dua Lipa, some cello students. So I arranged one of her songs for them to play. Okay. That's nice. <laughs> uh, to give them something to do. When you're dealing with the bass line and a little funky rhythm, they can do that and be very happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I have not ever gotten to the point where I feel comfortable doing solo gigs yet to this day. I have a looper pedal now. I have like these track things that I've worked with, which I hate. But sometimes if that's all you have, that's all you have. Yeah. But it's just not that much fun. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it is very different, but it's interesting that you should mention that because I've done quite a good bit of solo gigs they're not easy to program, no. you know, because not everything is going to work in that environment. But I have done them many times and I have some coming up the next two weeks where it's a limited audience that I'll be playing to mm-hmm. and short periods of time. But I'm playing. No, you're not. There's no electricity in the room. So it's acoustic cello okay. and uh, a few people. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's if you don't have to play for two hours. But I'm talking yeah. like I got two hours to cover no, by myself. That's too long. And you're that's like, too long. what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's I had the Jamie Aversol tracks get pulled out. Uh, um, yeah. I, I do the looper thing, I sing, I'm like, ah, you know. And then yeah, you're just like, let's yeah. make something up. Okay. And then because it's background, I'm like, okay, I can do this for a really long time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah. you know, but if it's like a grand performance then you have to have no it's yeah it's really hard when it's a grand performance Mm -hmm. you know that concert at amherst was that kind of thing and it was very difficult to do Mm -hmm. but for the most part if you um i've done things it's been a wedding or uh, where they want a certain kind of even a funeral of somebody very prestigious that they wanted some music and i could even play something classical Mm -hmm. as well as some spirituals and some jazz they wanted to hear some of everything so I always find it interesting to try to do jazz solo. Some of these violin players are out there have so much skill that they yeah. can play all the double stops and, and right. accompany themselves. I can't do it. Yes. I, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, so I have to think of what can I do to do that. It's just, it's nice to talk to somebody else about the solo thing. Cause I know a lot of uh, guitar players hate playing solo, not because they can't do it, but because it's just me for hours. Me, yeah, me, you get, you get tired of it. It's hard yeah. to, it's hard to pick an interesting program. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about it because I was doing solo concerts, even when I was just a classical cellist, mm-hmm. if you had a gig back then, you would just go and you play some box suites and right. something like that. And it was all, that kind of repertoire it wasn't often that you had that kind of gig that did come up during my younger years. So I was used to doing it to a certain point. Cello really has such a soothing sound. And since it has the lowest string, I can get into doing some different kinds of effects 
and some double stops. But I find that music, no matter what you've done in music and no matter how long you've played and studied, there's still so much more to learn. Oh, yes. So I'm enjoying that factor even now at this age. (laughs) And when people find you online? At my website, kuadixon.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I try to remember to post. I know that's more of a younger generation thing. So sometimes I do forget. I do Facebook the most. And my website is a good place to get me. Uh, A lot of times I will add music that's sheet music. If there are any string players out there that I add to that, that you can download either for yourself or for teaching your students. Thank you so very much for coming on the show. Great talking with you. Great talking with you. And congratulations on getting that opera completed because that in and of itself was amazing. We'll look for it. Thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Ben Michigan or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed on the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.